One of the most iconic moments of Arab-Israel relations is President Anwar Sadat's electrifying arrival in Israel in November 1977, and then the signing of the first peace treaty. Sadat, leader of the largest Arab state, and Menachem Begin, Prime Minister of Israel, on the White House lawn about a year and a half later. The two would win the Nobel Peace Prize. Yet what was the role of America's president, Jimmy Carter, at the time? How did a surprising opponent of the Sadat Peace Initiative become pivotal in the two sides making peace? And then, having become a peacemaker, how did relations of Carter sour so dramatically in the post-presidential period? Is Jimmy Carter misunderstood from start to finish? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. My name is David Murkowski, and I'm the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Coret Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This podcast, now in its fourth season, is dedicated to understanding key moments in the history of Israel, the U.S.-Israel relationship, and Arab-Israel relations. This season, we are talking to authors who have written books on these issues, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Despite Carter's small-town beginnings, coming from rural Georgia, emerging as a peanut farmer, and then being elevated to the state's governor, the Middle East became the defining issue of his presidency. Some of it was by design, namely his desire to focus on Arab-Israeli peace, and some of it was decidedly not. Carter assumed the presidency in January 1977, when the Arab-Israeli War of 1973 was a very fresh memory, as was the Arab oil embargo that came in the aftermath of that war. Carter felt that Henry Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy and its piecemeal approach to peace between Egypt and Israel and Syria and Israel, disengaging military troops on the battlefield between these countries during the Nixon and Ford administrations, had run its course. Now it was time for something much bolder, much more comprehensive. However, Carter did not count on the fact that there was someone who did not share his comprehensive vision, Anwar Sadat. Sadat felt the Carter approach would provide a veto at the conference table in the hands of his rival, Syrian President Hafez al-Assad. Instead, Sadat established a back channel of communications with Israel in Morocco. When Carter announced the idea of a comprehensive peace conference to be held in Geneva and to be chaired with the U.S. and the Soviets, Sadat decided to bolt. He had already expelled Soviet advisors from Egypt, and he didn't want his fate sealed either in Moscow nor in Damascus. In the words of Frank Sinatra, Sadat decided to do it my way, and he declared to the Egyptian parliament that he was making a historic trip to the Israeli parliament to speak directly to the Israeli people. Carter was shocked by Sadat's undermining of his comprehensive approach, But Sadat started on his journey alone, but he was not alone for long. He was very warmly received in Israel. Former Premier Golda Meir even likened his visit to the arrival of, quote, the Messiah, end quote. However, a strong case could be made that the Sadat initiative could not have been completed without the very intervention of the man who was stunned by it most, Jimmy Carter. Here to talk about the Carter administration's Middle East policy, 
is a man who is as close to Carter and is involved in the administration's decision-making as anyone alive today. Stuart Eisenstadt was Carter's domestic advisor and worked with Carter as an issues director for his 1970 gubernatorial campaign. He has since served as ambassador of the European Union under Secretary of Commerce and International Trade, under Secretary of State for Economic, Business, and Agriculture, Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, and currently serves as the White House's special advisor for Holocaust issues. Stewart's book, President Carter, The White House Years, serves as a fascinating glimpse into the behind-the-scenes development of the Carter administration. It's based on a collection of thousands of pages of handwritten notes by Stewart himself. Stewart's book also serves as an important resource for those seeking to learn more about the totality of Carter's foreign and domestic policy decision-making. Stuart Eisenstadt, welcome to Decision Points. Thanks for having me. Stu, how did you know Jimmy Carter? So let's start from the beginning, which is my relationship with Jimmy Carter. After a year in the Johnson White House and serving as Vice President Humphrey's research director in the 1968 campaign, when he lost, I went back to Atlanta, clerked for a federal judge, and met Jimmy Carter when he was running a second time, having been defeated the first time, for governor, and I became his policy advisor in his gubernatorial campaign. And then when he ran for president, came his policy advisor on both domestic and foreign policy when he was running for president, which started actually in November of 1974 for the 76 campaign. Israel, and indeed foreign policy, was not a major issue during the 1976 campaign. And he gave one major speech in June of 1976 in New Jersey, which I drafted on Israel, in which the only thing he did not accept was my reference to Israel as an ally. And he said, they're a friend, but if I say they're an ally, it might evoke some national security implications like NATO, that we would have to defend them against an attack. But going back even further to his announcement speech in November of 1974, I tried to get references to Israel in that announcement speech. And his political advisors were intent that it be focused uh, almost solely on post-Watergate reforms. The government as good as its people, reforming the civil service, reforming judicial appointments, reforming the CIA, dealing with all the excesses of Watergate. And the best I could do was get a brief reference to Israel, and that reference was simply supporting Israel's quote-unquote integrity. So the point is that Israel was not a major focus of the campaign between either in the primaries or between President Ford and Carter. It was during the transition that things began to change when Zbigniew Brzezinski, who I had put on to a foreign policy task force co-chaired by Cy Vance, began to raise the issue. And it went from a tertiary issue to a very significant issue. Now, one anecdote which is important is that during the transition after the election and before the inauguration, Carter became eligible for uh, detailed CIA briefings, 
The last CIA briefing was by then CIA director George H.W. Bush. And during a break at his home in Plains, he asked me to go out to the back door and wanted to ask me something. So he said, Stu, you've worked with both of them on the Foreign Policy Task Force. I'm thinking of naming Psy as Secretary of State and Spig as National Security Advisor. What do you think? I said, Mr. President, either one would be good in his position, but putting both of them together would be like mixing oil and water and won't work. And he said, why? And I said, because they have a fundamentally different view of the Soviet Union, which will be a major preoccupation of them, size a dove, as big as a hawk, and it will cause endless problems. Don't worry, you said, I like differences of opinion, I can handle it. Now, to focus on the Middle East, during the transition, Spig brought to Carter's attention a Brookings report that was done in late 1975 on the Middle East. It was as typical Brookings, very balanced composition. People like Rita Hauser were on and, and others. And it recommended that it was timely for a comprehensive approach to the Middle East and that the step-by-step approach that Kissinger had used in his disengagement negotiations had sort of run its course, and that from Israel's standpoint, any further pullback from the Sinai would have to be accompanied by something much more major than just a ceasefire, namely normalization. And Carter bought hook, line, and sinker the Brookings Report. And that explains in many ways why he broke from Kissinger's step-by-step approach, which the Brookings Report and Spig, who was on that commission, convinced him, was something that, again, had run its course. And the person who became the NSC's chief foreign Israel Middle East person was also on that task force. So the Brookings task force had a major, a major impact. Now, Carter had had another direct connection to Israel. Namely, in 1973, as governor, he, at the invitation of Yitzhak Rabin, then the ambassador of Israel to the U.S., and Golda Meir, made a visit with Rosalind, his wife, to Israel. And this was very meaningful to him. I mean, he went throughout Israel, including to the River Jordan, which, of course, had religious significance to his Baptist faith. And he said his only disappointment on that trip is the River Jordan was only a trickle. He expected some mighty flowing river like the Mississippi, and it was quite the opposite. But that reinforced for him something very important. When I started working with him, both as governor and particularly his presidential campaign, I explained that I was Jewish, I was serious about my religion, I had uh, family connections to Israel, I had uh, personal, religious, ideological commitments. And he assured me that Israel was very important to him because of his Baptist faith. He had taught Sunday school. He viewed Israel as the Holy Land. And that one of the most important things from his perspective, quite apart from geopolitics, was bringing peace to the Holy Land, to Israel. Now, from his big standpoint, it was not simply the Brookings report itself. Zbig was very anti-Russian, anti-Soviet. He had been Polish, emigre as a young kid. His family had fled. The Soviet Union, along with the Nazis, had dismembered 
Poland. And we were in the midst, David, of the Cold War. We're talking about the 1970s, the height of the Cold War, the height of Soviet power, its missile buildup, its nuclear buildup, its control over the East Bloc. And Zbig saw bringing peace to the Middle East as being an important component of asserting U.S. influence in the region. And that was doubled down by the fact that in 1973, during the Nixon administration, Sadat had broken with the Soviet Union, which had been his primary ally, his primary source of military assistance. And he made a decision to, in effect, break from them and become part of the Western camp. And Zbig wanted to reinforce that by bringing peace to the region. So that explains, I think, perhaps why Carter got involved and why he moved the Israel issue way up his foreign policy agenda, right next to arms control with the Soviet Union. I assume also the fact that there was an Arab oil embargo in 73, 74 also fed into this. Well, during the New Jersey speech in June of 76, which again, I largely drafted, Carter mentioned the oil embargo following the Yom Kippur War, and that he would not again, trade U.S. national security for oil. And so this was a a major factor of avoiding a, a second oil embargo. Exactly. But, you know, Carter, you could say, look, he hails from rural Georgia. I think you write in the book that the lack of political sensitivity was sometimes breathtaking. He didn't seem to have those same relationships that understood the role of Israel for many Jews in the diaspora. And he was lucky to have an advisor like yourself. But I wonder if he feels that he didn't come from that world. I heard that there was some quote that he said that he wanted Fritz Mondale to deal with the American Jewish community because it was like the air he breathed or something like that. Or that he saw some dividing line between those politicians who had some of those relationships and some who did not. Is that fair? Yes, I mean, this is fair. Unlike national democratic politicians for whom the Jewish community was a source of support financially and politically, and who were used to going to APAC conferences and American Jewish Committee conferences, at that time American Jewish Congress conferences, Carter had none of that background. It wasn't a natural part of his, and nor was being, by the way, part of the labor community. I mean, Mondale and others, Humphrey, you know, were labor Democrats, the AFL-CIO, the communications workers, etc. And Carter used to always send Mondale to speak at those conferences and at Jewish conferences, not because he was anti-Semitic, but because he didn't feel any more comfortable there than he did with uh, the labor guys and knew that this was part of Fritz's whole DNA and it was not part of his. But On the other hand, and the thing that I, to this day, found extremely aggravating is even taking the fact that he brokered the first peace agreement between Israel and its most threatening Arab enemy, Egypt, the number of things that reflected a understanding of Jewish history as he grew into the job are quite remarkable. We pledged during the campaign and certainly it's part of my, my 
having urged it, but he, we pledged to end the Arab boycott of Israel. And in 1977, I helped broker the last part of a deal between the Business Roundtable, which was opposed to ending the boycott, and the Jewish organizations, people like Al Moses from the American Jewish Committee, Paul Berger from the American Jewish Congress. And he signed that law, which barred the secondary Arab boycott against Israel. Second, he became a real champion for Soviet Jewry. We were able to double the number of Soviet Jews from 25 to 30 to 50,000 who came out. And by Sharansky's own statements and memoir, Carter saved his life. Uh, Avital, by the way, being represented by Alan Dershowitz, my Harvard Law School professor, came to me several times urging Carter to do it. And when the trial started, he took a very, very dramatic statement, which presidents don't do. Presidents do not almost ever say when someone's arrested on allegations of being a spy that he's not a spy because if, if they arrest somebody who is and he doesn't say anything, it speaks volumes. So he, in the midst of his trial, he said Sharansky is not a spy, did never spy for Israel. And Sharansky believed that saved his life. Third, it was Jimmy Carter, again at my recommendation, but nevertheless, uh, who created the Presidential Commission on the Holocaust, headed by, chaired by Elie Wiesel, who accepted their recommendation to create what's now the museum. We got the legislation, which I helped draft, passed. And so he's the father of the museum. So he grew into the job and really began to understand the importance of the Holocaust to Jewish history, the importance of Israel to Jewish community. So even though he came from a background in which he was virtually isolated, he grew. Now, he had one uncle who had married uh, uh, someone in his family who was Jewish. He went to one Seder. He went to a Seder of mine in 1979, and you're talking about something that was meaningful. It was only a few weeks after the Egypt-Israel peace treaty, and here we were talking about the Jews leaving Egypt as slaves. It was quite remarkable. With one humorous anecdote, when it came time to open a door for Elijah, I got up and uh, started, and the Secret Service jumped me and said, you can't open the front door. The house is secured. And I explained that I had to do it. It was part of religious tradition. And Carter was laughing up the storm. I ended up negotiating opening the back door, which was open to a porch and not to a house. And that's the only time Elijah's ever come into our house through the back door. Uh, he, he, he grew into the job in terms of the Jewish community. You know, he was the first president in that famous Clinton, Massachusetts forum, I believe, in March 77, to talk about a homeland for the Palestinians. I think in my discussions with you, I do have the sense that Carter saw the Palestinian issue through the lens of someone from the American South. Now, of course, if Yasser Arafat would have been Martin Luther King 40 years ago, there would be a Palestinian state. Yet he made those connections regardless of the violence, regardless of the wars in the Middle East. You know, he saw this in those terms. Is is that a fair assessment? So let's go to uh, the town hall meeting in March of 1977 in Clinton, Massachusetts, where I accompanied him personally. And I was sitting 
on the steps of the podium at which he was speaking when he got a question about the Palestinians and said, and I assure you, unscripted, Brzezinski and Vance were as surprised as I was, that the Palestinians deserved a homeland of their own. Not a state, but a homeland. And I almost fell off the stairs, totally unscripted. And it showed, David, I think his view of the underdog. Carter was a fiscal conservative, but a social liberal, very strong on civil rights and on human rights. And he empathized always with the underdog. I mean, he himself had been one. And he grew up in a county that was over 60% black. His playmates, not his schoolmates, because we were in a segregated South, but his playmates were all black. His closest friend was black. He played with the sharecroppers' kids who worked the land of his father's farm. And so he identified very much with the underdog at the Naval Academy at Annapolis. He defended, and this is verified by the midshipmen, the one black in their class who was being constantly harassed. Now, he said to me later after the administration, when I was doing research for my book, President Carter of the White House Years, I asked him about this very question, his sympathy for the Palestinians. And he said, yes, they were the underdogs. And in my estimation, I'm now saying Jimmy Carter's estimation, quoting him, that the white police in the South treated blacks better than the Israeli army treated the Palestinians, which was a sort of shocking statement, but again, indicated his sympathy for the Palestinians as part of a sort of civil rights, human rights view of, of life. And that framed a lot of his attitude toward the Palestinians. and to this, again, unscripted statement about the Palestinians needing a homeland. A key figure of the Carter presidency is Anwar Sadat. He is the person also that had a huge impact on Kissinger as well, you know, in the post-war diplomacy and bringing Egypt into the American orbit, so to speak. They'd been very much in the Soviet orbit until then, Egypt had been. And yet we see an interesting dynamic is that Carter was focused on a comprehensive peace conference in Geneva, which you could say emerged from his sense as a naval systems analyst, always wanting the complete system, and maybe that was his training in the Navy. He saw this systematic way to get everyone around one table. Sadat, however, becomes suspicious that the Syrian leader, Hafez al-Assad, is really insincere about peace. And he thought... He's going to hold me back in a comprehensive setting. He's someone who will hold the veto so I cannot go forward with Israel. Instead, he sends a deputy prime minister named Hassan Touhami, the deputy prime minister of Egypt, to hold secret talks in Morocco with the famed general with the eye patch, Moshe Dayan, who was foreign minister in the Begin government. Dayan, of course, was a hero in Israel. They held the secret channel. And I think from Dion's writing, it is clear that he notified the U.S. of this. However, the U.S. and Carter want to go forward with Geneva anyway. And your point is about how Vance and Brzezinski differed over Russia. But this was going to be a peace conference that was co-sponsored with the Soviet Union. It seems that Sadat wrote Carter, don't mess up my direct channel with the Israelis. And then he goes that way. He bolts. He leaves the Carter concept even though Carter wrote him a handwritten not, note not to do so, saying, I need you. And he decides, Sadat, 
that he's going to make this dramatic, electrifying trip to Jerusalem. It's going to be considered one of the most significant diplomatic moments of the entire 20th century, not just in the Middle East. He's going to the parliament of his enemy. We hear Carter is, was not happy in those early days as Sadat strikes out on his own. He makes some preliminary visit to test the waters in Romania, and also he seeks Crown Prince Fahad in Saudi Arabia. I think he sees also the Shah of Iran. He doesn't exactly share all his thinking with each of them, but he does want their sense. When he sees the Romanian leader, Nikolai Ceausescu, he asks, do you think Begin is a strong person? Could he make peace? So this is a super dramatic time. And as Carter is elevating the Middle East to be central to his presidency, and yet Sadat goes his own way. Now, to be fair, Carter ultimately swings behind it. And I think it's clear that Camp David certainly would not have happened without Jimmy Carter. This was the key pivotal summit where they got the outline of the peace framework. But that period was a time of Sadat and Begin that seemed to be possibly going in opposite directions. And you were at the White House at the time. Can you give us a sense of the mood and how does the United States say, oh, yeah, there are these secret talks going on in Morocco, but we're going to ignore that and go to Geneva anyway. And Sadat says, no, you're not. I'm going out on my own. What was the whole mood in the White House at that time? Remember that Jimmy Carter was, among many other things, an engineer. He wanted comprehensive solutions to everything. So, for example, on the domestic side, at the same time as he was pushing for a comprehensive solution to the Middle East, he was pushing for comprehensive energy bill, a comprehensive welfare reform bill. Everything had to be comprehensive. And he didn't understand how Congress works, that it's an incremental body. But that was his mindset. Now, the relationship between he and Sadat, which I saw personally, and with Mondale even, on the trip that I took in the Middle East with Mondale, and I have a picture in my den on the, in Alexandria with, with Sadat and Mondale, Sadat was an electrifying figure, ramrod straight like the general he was, handsome, well-tailored, warm, effusive. And he and Carter struck up a remarkable relationship in which, if trust is a key element in diplomacy, the trust that existed from Sadat to Carter was complete. He literally said to him, you know what I need. I'm going to trust you. He was not a detail man. I'm going to trust you to represent my interests in any negotiation. Now, having said that, it's very important to understand on this comprehensive notion that Carter wanted to reinstitute the Geneva conference process that Kissinger had begun and it collapsed in one day with all the Arabs around, because Assad refused to participate. And Carter had this notion that if he, and he did meet with Assad, he could convince Assad to go and to get the Golan Heights back and a comprehensive settlement. And when Sadat saw that, he realized that Assad would never change, and that if he had any chance of getting the Egyptian Sinai back, he would never get it back in a Geneva conference with 22 Arab states. There would always be one and Assad the most likely to veto it. And that plus trying to endear himself 
to his new U.S. friends, having broken from the Soviet Union, I think was significantly responsible for this historic trip to uh, Israel. And when he landed just after Shabbat in his uh, white uh, 707 with the spotlights all over him, it was such a surprise that when they hastily called out the military band, nobody had a score of the Egyptian national anthem. They had to listen to a recording and make it up. And the receiving line was a who's who of everyone in Israel. It was Sharon and Rabin and Golda Meir and all the generals against whom he fought. And when he shook hands with Golda, she said, I've been waiting for this day a long time. And he said, yes, Shalom. And he saw Sharon and he said, I almost got you across the canal. It was an electric moment. Now, when he came to the Knesset, he gave a maximalist speech, which sort of set things back a bit, but it didn't detract from the history. Now, when the announcement was made that Sadat was going, I happened to cross the hallway just outside the Oval Office with Carter alone. And he stopped me and said, Stu, I'm inclined to throw some cold water on Sadat's planned trip because it will end the chance of a comprehensive peace. It'll mean a bilateral peace. I said, Mr. President, there's no way you can do that. This is unbelievably historic. You need to get behind it. And he sort of grumped and went off. Of course, he did. But that was his initial instinct. He wanted that comprehensive peace. He wanted to hold on to it. And then, in a way that's contrary to this notion of keeping the Soviets out of the Middle East, he joins, as Kissinger had done in 73, with a joint communique from the Soviet Union to Israel and the Arab states to come to Geneva for a resumption of the Geneva process. And all hell breaks loose in Israel. He's bringing the Soviets back in. He wants a comprehensive peace. And again, that's what ended up leading Sadat to take his trip. But there was a famous meeting in a hotel in New York in which Diane embarrassingly got Carter to back off. There's a famous sentence in Ken Stein's book, who was someone who had worked for Carter and, and broke from Carter, who said, quoting Diane, I believe, along the lines, Mr. President, I might have only one eye, but I'm not blind. And this was over Carter's decision to go the Geneva route. Once he did, he got strongly behind Sadat's effort. But again, Carter was not initially happy about it. So let me get you to another relationship, and that's Carter's relationship with Menachem Begin. Everyone knows how different they were. You know he was a governor of Georgia, and Menachem Begin is defined very much in no small measure by the fact that his family is destroyed in the Holocaust. And he goes on to the Irgun, this militant organization. Now, both are religious people in their own way. And in the early meetings, they really make a, a, an effort to have a relationship, to get off on a good foot. And, you know, I went through the declassified notes of first and second meetings that they had. And the second one was right after Sadat visited Jerusalem and right before Begin was about to put forward his autonomy plan. Carter was very complimentary. He thought that Begin's autonomy ideas were far-reaching. So... As a matter of fact, I spoke to Aaron Barak. He was a, became the Israeli Supreme Court's brilliant chief justice. He thought that 
Fagan's ideas were so far reaching that he tried to had to reel them in a little bit. But the meeting was excellent. But then the relationship really sours really quickly. And I'm just trying to understand, as someone who was so intimately involved, why did that relation sour so dramatically? Important to understand, I had, I was really the sort of official back channel to the Israeli embassy. Now, I want to be very frank. I had a personal relationship with Fagan. He invited me and my late wife, Fran, after the administration to be his personal guests in Israel because of what I had done to help Israel in many fronts. But Menachem Begin was a very difficult interlocutor. Number one, he was the first non-Labor Party prime minister, the first Likud prime minister. He was a devotee of Jabotinsky, who believed that Israel had a right, not biblical, he was not religious, but had a right to all the land and this did come from the Bible, but I mean, he wasn't an Orthodox. From the Mediterranean to the Jordan River, and in fact, the original Yagun flag was east of the Jordan. That was his mindset. This is all Israel's, and it's unfortunate that these Palestinians have been living there for a while. So one of the frustrations that Carter had, and it was a legitimate frustration, is we could not get Begin to accept UN Resolution 242 for many months, the land for peace, because he felt he was giving up part of what was due to Israel and to the Jewish people. He sent a remarkable emissary <laughs> who went to the Borscht Belt before his first visit, Shmuel Katz, who was a remarkably right-wing provocateur, and then insisted that he sit in the first White House meeting in the cabinet room. I mean, a non-government official. So. That was his mindset, and he lectured. He was a legal stickler. He was a very difficult negotiator. In the end, a very effective one, because he would hold out to the last minute, but very, very difficult. He tried Carter's patience, Carter to bite his tongue with long lectures on Jewish history before we got to the system. And this constantly came up. I accept all these points. What would you say, though, to say that Al-Assad was someone who was not an easy customer either. And yet, you know, basically Carter had an excellent relationship with them. Assad was a dictator, an autocrat. He had done a lot of brutalities to his people. Weren't there reasons to criticize the Syrians in a way that he didn't? Carter didn't seem to do so. I, I say in my book, because I took verbatim notes of all the meetings, when he said to the congressional leadership, that Assad is more moderate than his tone, and I said he always sympathizes with Assad. I think that somehow the fact that Bacon was part of a democracy where you could try to influence public opinion, and that if you had any chance of success with Assad, being critical of him was not going to get you very far. What about Camp David itself? You know, we call this podcast Decision Points, and it was a real decision point here. Carter, it seemed like, kept his eyes on the prize that he was going to do the comprehensive deal, at least not just the Israel-Egypt peace treaty. But if he couldn't do a comprehensive deal with the Golan, at least with the West Bank. And I think you know that Begin saw Egypt as the prize of the first Israel peace treaty, because if you get peace with the biggest Arab state, 
there's no more war coalition against Israel. You have to understand the flavor of Camp David. First of all, after the Sadat visit, Israel and Egypt tried unsuccessfully bilaterally to take the next step because what Sadat essentially said was no more war. Well, how do you translate that into an operative agreement? And they couldn't, and they didn't make any progress. And advance went over uh, Ismailia and so forth to try to help. Nothing worked. And Carter took a long shot against the advice of his advisors to invite them to Camp David. I mean, that was an incredibly bold and courageous step. If it failed, his whole presidency might crumble. He chose a secluded place. He barred the press. He prevented leaks. He prevented either side playing to their home audience. He did 20 drafts himself and then added many personal elements. He went to Shabbat dinner with uh, Begin and the Israeli group and, and made sure that there was a kosher kitchen. He took Sadat and Begin to uh, Gettysburg to underscore the futility of more war. And uh, interesting anecdote there was that Sadat, who was a general and had actually done some training in the United States, started talking about all the mistakes the Confederates had made, including Pickett's last charge, making Carter a little uncomfortable as a Southerner. Now, Begin was anything but a general, but he was a Lincoln devotee and without any notes, spontaneously delivered the Gettysburg Address word for word. So, you know, he tried all sorts of ways to create a personal relationship. It's incredible. I mean, but he succeeded ultimately. Carter, it seemed to me, because he made a conceptual decision. Look, all the human touches were crucial, I have no doubt. But the conceptual leap was to say, I'm not going to solve this all at once. I'm not going to be a systems engineer. I'm going to go exclusively for the Egypt-Israel peace treaty and then add principles for an autonomy deal when the Israelis and Palestinians are ready. But you have to understand the personal dynamic. So. Carter and Begin and Sadat at the first meeting was a disaster, largely because of Sadat. He repeated a maximalist set of demands, and it just blew Begin off. And Carter realized he was not going to make progress with the two of them together. And so he then sought other ways to negotiate. Now, from Sadat's standpoint, he was conceding so much his own foreign minister resigned at Camp David. And what Carter did is he went to Diane, the foreign minister, to Weitzman, the defense minister, ultimately to Aharon Barak, the legal advisor, and negotiated around Begin and got them to convince him because he was so difficult and inflexible. With respect to Sadat, however, he got Osama el-Baz, who was the legal advisor, to work with Barak, but the rest of the delegation was frozen out. Sadat, again, was delegating to Carter large amounts of Egypt's future. But you would agree to that. So then conceptually, to get to your point, conceptually, at this point, he realized, obviously, that a comprehensive peace was impossible. But he also knew from Sadat that Sadat could not go home, not just to Egypt, but to the Arab world, with nothing for the Palestinians. Now, Carter and Mrs. Carter and Vance and everybody else did backflips to try to get the PLO into Camp David. 
by accepting 242. And Sadat and Arafat wouldn't do it. So there were no Palestinians there, zero. And Sadat realized if he went home with nothing for the Palestinians and only got the Sinai back, which was difficult enough, his isolation in the Arab world would be increased. And Carter realized that. And so he pushed Fagan to accept what ultimately was called full autonomy, an undefined full autonomy. So yes, he did abandon the full comprehensive peace, but he felt he had to get something for the Palestinians on the West Bank, or Sadat would be doomed, and Sadat couldn't sign Camp David. So Camp David is an extraordinary achievement. And as you say correctly, while Carter was not for the Sadat initiative when it happened, he swung behind it. And I think you can make the argument that if Carter had insisted to hold everything hostage to a West Bank deal, there would have been no deal whatsoever. So I'm wondering if Carter feels in a certain way, you know, that he wasn't given the credit he deserved for Camp David. He, he doesn't win the Nobel Peace Prize. He does feel that, but, but you're leaving out a second and critically important point. Camp David was an accord. It was a framework for peace. It was not a treaty. And here we get to another major disagreement between Carter and Fagan. The ink is hardly dry on Camp David. They're going to go to a joint session. And Fagan, getting pressure from his right wing, starts making statements before we even got into the halls of Congress with the Camp David Accords, saying he's not for a complete withdrawal, he's not, he didn't agree to a settlement freeze, he's never going to get up Jerusalem, every red line he could draw. And this aggravated Carter and Begin to no end. But what happens between Camp David and the treaty is vitally important to understand. The accord called for two negotiations. It called for completing the bilateral agreement between Israel and Egypt within three months. It called for negotiating full autonomy within five years. And during, quote unquote, the course of negotiations, there was supposed to be a freeze on expansion of settlements. And here became a huge dispute, which soured Carter on Begin for the rest of his term, and indeed for the rest of his life. I spoke to Aaron Barak. He says that Begin even asked that he send Carter his notes of that famous conversation at Camp David. And Barack says there's no question it was a commitment for three months. So, so here I was involved. I was in the Oval Office with Carter alone on another issue when the news came that the three months had ended and Begin had started to build new settlements. And Carter just blew up and he said he violated his promise at Camp David. He's lied to me. And I said, Mr. President, Begin may be a strong ideologue, but he's a very honest person. This has to be an honest disagreement. And he went back to his desk in the Oval Office and pulled out his notes. And it said five years. And he said, Carter says to me, I checked with Cy Vance. And he said it was five years. So I think Sadat, because there's some evidence that he gave a press conference in Alexandria when he returned and was asked why he only agreed to three months freeze. And he said, what's wrong with three months? But Carter believed 
that Begin had violated. And I said to Carter, there's no way Begin could have agreed to five years, Mr. President. His coalition would have fallen apart. But that was a huge part of the disagreement. So then the other part between Camp David and the treaty was that Israel and Egypt cannot reach a bilateral agreement. And he takes an even greater risk, or at least an equal risk, of going to the region to try to reach an agreement. And I can assure you that every single advisor, his political advisors, Brzezinski, Vance, and Mondale, all said, Mr. President, you can't do this. If you go abroad, we had the hostage crisis and everything else happening, and you fail, it's the end of your presidency. And if we can't get them to agree, we haven't been able to get to them to agree, you're not going to be able to do it either. And he said, I'm going. I've got too much invested in this. And over three and a half or four days, he finally reached an agreement, but only with this. In that interim period, David, shortly afterward, Diane and Weissman came to Washington for what was called the Madison, Camp Madison negotiations, the Madison Hotel. They reached a treaty agreement with Egypt just like that. And Begin vetoed it. He got the cabinet to vote against it. So we're dealing with a very difficult interlocutor. And one other anecdote, which is, I think, important, is that when Carter goes there and does shuttle diplomacy between Egypt and, and Israel, he's again working with Weizmann and Diane, who reach agreements that Begin keeps blocking. He was staying at the King David Hotel in the presidential suite, and all the aides have now gone to Ben Gurion Airport to get back on Air Force One. The plane is fueled, the airspace is cleared, and Begin unexpectedly calls and says, Mr. President, I'd like to see you before you leave. Well, everyone thought, you know, it's just a courtesy. I'm sorry it didn't work. Thanks for coming. And Carter calls down to the lobby and says, boys, entertain the prime minister. Rosa and I have to get redressed. You know, they were dressed informally for the plane. And during that conversation, Begin says, you know, this is a very famous hotel, the King David Hotel. Uh, yes, sir, we know. Well, not for the reasons you think. He says, when I was in there going, I blew this hotel up with the British. But don't worry, I'm not going to do it until the president leaves. And they went up to the presidential suite. That's where they reached an agreement. They came down on the elevator of the famous King David Hotel, and it broke just before the lobby. And the Secret Service had to get both Begin and Carter out, but first, and I called it the breach birth of the treaty. Look, there's no taking away from Carter's personal investment. Without it, I think it's clear that there would not have been an Egypt-Israel peace treaty. I want to be clear about that. But my last question to you is just the bitterness of Carter in the post-presidency. And I'm trying to understand the origins. Some say, well, you know, the Jewish community voted for him 70% in 1976, but only 40% after he brought the peace treaty. Some say that he told Sadat, I'm going to do a second round of treaties if I'm reelected. And he doesn't get reelected. And then somehow feels responsible for the Sadat assassination. Even with all the tension with Begin, the Jewish community realized Carter had championed Soviet Jewry, created the Holocaust Museum, had created Camp David and the treaty. And in Illinois, the Illinois primary against Teddy Kennedy, all right, two weeks before the New York primary, Jimmy Carter against. Teddy Kennedy got 70% of the Jewish 
vote. 70%, the same percent he got in the general election in 76, okay? Now, there was a lot of water under the dam. You had the Andy Young affair with the PLO, but that had already passed. What made the difference was the following. And I know from interviewing Teddy's staff that he had agreed. He knew he was going to lose New York. We were 20 points ahead of Teddy in New York, according to the polls. He already had his announcement ready in Boston to withdraw. And then what happened was a UN resolution sponsored by Egypt dealing with Israel. And it was critical of of Israel, but Carter had promised Begin that he would support no UN resolution dealing with Jerusalem. And that was his instruction to Vance. That resolution, to Carter's surprise, had six references to Jerusalem. And Vance ordered Donald McHenry, who succeeded Andy Young as ambassador, to support the bloody thing. And all hell broke loose. We started losing staff. I mean, they literally came out of out of our campaign headquarters. And Carter went from a 20-point uh, advantage over Teddy to losing by five or seven points. And it was largely because of that. So Carter was hugely disappointed when he got the smallest percentage of Jewish votes in the general election against an unknown governor from California with all he had done. And it did leave him extremely disappointed, for sure. Now, Jews are 2% of the vote. I mean, he lost by 10 million votes and got, you know, and got almost no electoral votes except Minnesota and Georgia. So that hardly lost him the election. But it is something that stuck in his craw for many years. Leave aside what happened in 1980. What comes across after Carter is president? is a bitterness that was really key, that he became a a vociferous critic of Israel more than any other former president. Well, afterward, I'm talking about the presidency. And and here's a guy, here's a president, who spent untold political assets on negotiating Camp David and then the treaty, who, in the midst of so many other issues, inflation, the hostage crisis, is determined to make this work and brings Israel peace with its most threatening Arab neighbor. And it has been a cold peace for sure, but it's lasted now since 1979. Not one incident. And I would go even further. With Egypt out of the war coalition, the biggest Arab state, there's no wars. 56, 67, 73, that's it. Once Egypt goes out of the war coalition, Of course, this doesn't count Hamas, Hezbollah, non-state actors, or Iran, which is not an Arab country. But in terms of the war, as the Middle East as we knew it, that was the end. Well, not only that, but after the treaty, Carter was aggravated Israel was asking for so much additional money, $3.3 billion. But let's look at what we did. I negotiated with the Israelis and with the Israeli energy minister a guarantee that when they pulled out of the oil fields in the Sinai, and at that time there was no natural gas field in the Mediterranean, you know where they were getting most of their oil from? Azerbaijan and Iran. (laughs) Uh, So we guaranteed 
at below market prices that we would supply oil if Egypt cut it off, number one. Number two, we, were, we built, and it's there to this very day, I visited it uh, several times, the Ramon Air Force Base, one of the great modern Air Force bases in, in, in Israel. We built it, the Corps of Engineers with Carter's support. Uh, so all of these things had come into play. And, uh, and here he gets so little support from the Jewish community. And there's no progress on the Palestinian issue. Things get worse. You know, the intifadas and expansion of settlements. There were 17,000 settlers when we left office. There are a couple of hundred thousand now. So all of these things were, were, were problems for, for Carter. So, Stu, I want to thank you so much for really shedding incredible insight into this period that is still debated and probably will be debated for a very long time to come. I think your assessments are something that historians are going to have to grapple with. As you were someone who was in the room, I want to thank you very much for being with us today on Decision Points. Thank you very much. My, my pleasure, David. Thank you. I just had a very lively exchange with Stuart Eisenstadt, who gave us an insider account of how President Jimmy Carter saw a very, very dramatic period in Middle Eastern history. I think one of my takeaways is as follows. On two occasions, Carter was willing to sacrifice his personal views for the sake of a major leap forward in the Middle East. On one hand, Carter didn't see the trajectory of the Sadat Initiative of 1977 as his preferred course, to put it mildly. And he didn't see the primary, almost exclusive focus on the Egypt-Israel bilateral peace treaty as the preferred outcome of the Camp David summit of 1978, given Carter's interest in the Palestinian issue on the West Bank. Yet in each case, Carter ultimately yielded to the parties. He yielded to Sadat at the beginning, with the start of his initiative in November 1977, and he yielded to Begin at Camp David in 1978. The results each time were dramatic successes, even if Carter thought there could be even greater successes if he got his own way. Perhaps Carter deserves the Nobel Peace Prize for seeing the Egypt-Israel peace treaty through, something that was deprived of him. And indeed, no Israelis nor Egyptians have died on that battlefield since that peace treaty was culminated. That peace treaty has survived the killing of Sadat, two wars in Lebanon, two intifadas in the West Bank and Gaza, and even the brief emergence of a Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. Perhaps one of Carter's unsung contributions at Camp David was that he personally took the leaders on a field trip during the 13-day summit. He took Sadat and Begin to join him and visit the nearby battlefield of Gettysburg. It is estimated that 51,000 soldiers were either killed or wounded during those three days. It was a clear reminder of the heavy cost of war, which Sadat and Begin knew all too well, and also about the imperative for peace. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Decision Points. Make sure to join us again. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you listened to all of season four and to all previous seasons. 
You can find Decision Points on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast, as well as on the Washington Institute website. Download and subscribe to never miss an episode. While you're there, please leave us a review and rating and tell your friends. I want to thank all those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinators, Gabriel Epstein, David Patkin, and Jonah Schrock and our researchers, Valeria De La Fuente and Stuart Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, Carolina Krauskopf, and Maria Rodacci of the Washington Institute. And finally, Adrian Bain, our producer, and Richard Myron from Earshot Strategies. Thank you all. <laughs>